Yeah, I made an oversight here a moment ago, and uh, I just want to make sure that you uh, welcome today a missionary that we have here today to the country of Japan. And uh, we were going to give her a five-minute window, and I, I just got... Uh, mixed up a little bit on some things, but uh, please make sure that before you leave, you drop by and see Lindsay Carter, missionary to Japan. Uh, Lindsay, would you just stand right here? We're sorry. Please forgive me. Would you welcome her here today? And uh, just drop by and see what the Lord is doing in her and her husband's life, her family's life over in Japan. Um, For those of you that are just joining us today, we are in a series through this summer that we have simply called Shore Points, Lessons from the Beach, and each week uh, I or one of the other pastors is going to be up here sharing with you a story from the Bible that took place on a beach, on a shore, in the water, on the water, and uh, how many of you know that some of the greatest stories in the Bible actually occurred on a beach or uh, around the water in that kind of a format? And uh, we're just simply looking at each one of these stories, pulling out of them some life lessons, things that we believe can help us in our journey here on this earth and live more effectively for the glory and the honor of God. And today I, I, I want you, if you will, to turn with me to Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20. We'll get there in a moment, uh, but there's a couple of things that I want to share with you before we get into this incredible story that, again, took place on the beach of a port city in Greece known as Miletus. Uh, Back in the late 80s, the very early 90s, there was a t-shirt that was very popular at that time. I don't know if you remember this, But it simply read, if I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. I always got a charge whenever I saw that. Because it was obviously written by people who were desperately and hopelessly out of shape. But I just always thought that was funny. If I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. But as comical as that might be, I can tell you that that just about sums up the attitude of the church for about three or four decades concerning discipleship. That really it could be said by the church now, looking back over three or four decades, if we knew that we were going to be here this long, we would have taken better care of ourselves. Uh, If you are newer to the faith, if you have received Christ uh, within the last maybe 20 years or so, or you have just recently begun your journey with the Lord, you may not really be able to understand that. However, if your informative years of the faith started somewhere in the late 60s, into the 70s, into the 80s, and even to a certain degree to the very early uh, to mid-90s, you understand it, even if you've never really considered it. Because if those were your informative years, you know that at that particular time, the church had so much emphasis upon the rapture, so much emphasis upon the gathering of the saints to meet the Lord in the air and forevermore being with Him, that there was very little room 
for discussion about discipleship at that time. There was very little discussion about spiritual health and growth and development of wellness in the Lord. Very little discussion. We were so convinced that we were going to be taken away in this rapture and that it would happen very soon that we never even gave it a thought about being prepared to live in this world in the event we weren't. Now, I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. I am not um, distancing myself from what I believe. I believe in the return of Christ Jesus. And I believe it's imminent. And I believe that at any moment we could be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. There is no doubt about that. That is a biblical fact. So don't read anything between the lines because that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that there was such a preoccupation with the coming of the Lord that there was very little concern about his command, occupy until I come. We were so concerned about getting out of here that we just never thought about discipleship. And the mantra in that season of Christian faith was, let's just do whatever it takes to get people into the kingdom of God. Don't worry about discipleship. Don't worry about them developing and growing in the things of God because the reality is we're not going to be here long enough for them to grow. Let's just do whatever we can to get them into the kingdom. Jesus is coming really soon. Don't worry about discipleship. Don't worry about their health and their wellness. Don't worry about preparing them for the future. There is no future. Jesus is coming that soon. Now, again, if you're new, you don't understand it. But those of you that, again, went through the late 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the early 90s, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It all started in 1970 with the release of a book that many of you have heard of, some of you even had, a book that came out in 1970 by a man named Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. How many of you remember that book, The Late Great Planet Earth? Some of you, how many of you had that book? Many of us did. It was a staple in almost every Christian home. That book literally reshaped the thinking in the church concerning the last days. It literally began to do something different in the psyche of of the average Christian. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, came all of these teachers who had their maps and their charts and they went into the church and they laid them out and they talked about the seven-year tribulation and the Antichrist. They tried to shed light on the mysteries of Daniel and Revelation. And all of a sudden, people were talking about this thing that they had never really talked that much about other than that he was coming. And all of a sudden, we were trying to figure out who the Antichrist was, where he's going to come from, the one world government. All of this was really a preoccupation to the body of Christ. And it gave birth to some incredible things, uh, many resources we never had. It actually was the fuel behind um, Christian movies. Some of you remember movies that came out, I think it was in 1972, A Thief in the Night. It was followed by A Distant Thunder. And then the image of the beast and the prodigal planet, these were a staple in every youth group if you, went, if you grew up in that particular time. And they depicted the stories of men and women who were left behind after the rapture. How many of you ever saw that growing up? Some of you did. Now, they don't hold well today. They're pretty cheesy by today's standards. But I'm going to tell you, in the 70s, it scared you to death. 
It literally, it just the idea of being left behind, it was frightening. And it caused a whole generation of Christian youth, every time mom and dad were not home when they were supposed to be, or they were later than they should have been, to say, oh my God, the rapture's taking place. And I've been left behind and you would get on the phone and call every godly man, every godly woman you knew just to make sure that you hadn't been left behind. It gripped us. There was no way we thought we were going to get into the 90s, let alone the 2000s. We didn't think we'd get out of the 80s. In fact, the close of the 80s was with a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come in 1988. And the sequel... 89 reasons why Jesus will come in 1989. He stopped after that, you know. But Christians bought into it. We were so convinced we were getting out of here that no one ever took the time to take Scripture and apply it to our day-to-day lives. To prepare people for the days we thought we'd get out of. That we would just get a pass on so no one ever really developed the, the metal the fight, the strength to endure difficult seasons. We never dreamed we'd still be here, so no one ever really prepared for the long haul. So here we are now, entering into what will quickly become the most difficult times in human history, with the understanding that it's only going to become increasingly more difficult, because the Bible itself says that things are going to wax worse and worse, and yet... Many professing Christians, and I don't want to put too fine of a point on it, but most are not spiritually healthy enough or discerning enough to endure the days that we are coming into. Listen, times are hard, folks. Turn to your neighbor and say, times are hard. (laughs) I mean, we just know it. I mean, how many of you have just felt the stress of the days that we live in? I can't be the only child of God that has joined with the Spirit and the bride saying, Come, Lord Jesus. I mean, it is difficult. Times are hard. And I see many Christians, sadly, just giving up, just quitting out of exhaustion because they lack a disciplined heart and mind and simply cannot hang any longer under the mounting pressures of the days we live in. And even in my own life as a senior pastor, I've, I've seen the effects of it. And I've, I've even struggled more this year than I think in other years, especially in the summer season, because in the summer season, there are more and more people that are taking time off from church and just beaching it. You know, and just they, they just say, I'm going to put my faith on hold for three months so I can get my skin tanned. So that I can relax. And, and you know, I've not really been one to condemn that because I get it. Long winters, we want some time away. But it's not just resorting a little bit. Now it's just, I'm going to put faith on the, on the hold for a minute. And I'm just going to pursue my own desires and my own wants. Last week, I, I was sharing with one of our elders. I just went up and said... You know, I, I, I've had a profound sense of sadness in my heart over the last few weeks. I just don't talk about it. I've even experienced some depression. And understand when I use that word, I'm not talking about clinical depression. I'm not on anything, okay? I'm just talking about being under such pressure 
in pastoring and, and just seeing the lives of men and women that there's a sadness within my heart. I, I just become very concerned about the lives of men and women around me and the decisions that they are making with absolutely no thought of the long-term effects. Christians, Christians, now I can expect this in the world, but Christians today are more concerned about what's going on right now with no consideration of the choices and the decisions that they're making and the long-term effects come the next 10, 15, 20 years from now. Christians just abandoning their marriages, abandoning their faith, just getting away from the church and saying, I don't need to go to church where all those hypocrites are. I can have my own church in my own home. Just the abandonment of all that the Word of God teaches because of the moment they live in with no thought of what they're doing to their families, their children, their marriage, their lives for generations to come. A couple of weeks ago, I was out with one of our other leaders here in the church for breakfast and the waitress that came over to us she had a tattoo of a man's name on her neck. And I mean, obviously she wanted people to see it. It was right out there. There was no way of hiding it. So we just asked, what's it? What's, or who is he? And she just had an annoyed look on her face and said, my ex-boyfriend. <laughs> Biggest mistake I ever made is what she said. You know, and there's no recovery from that. Like, what do you say then? You know, you just say, well, we're praying for you. You know, I don't, what, what do you say? But that is the mentality. If I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. I'm sure that in that moment, it seemed like the right thing to do. Tattoo his name on my neck. But would you consider, I may be, break up with this guy. What if we do get married and there's a divorce? I don't want this on my neck. That's a tattoo. But there are men and women every day that are making decisions that have greater repercussions than that. But they don't think about tomorrow. They don't think about 10 years from now. It's only in this moment what gratifies me, what satisfies me. Instead of considering, wait a minute, I may have a long time on this planet. And I want that time to be as, as normal, as stress-free as it can be. And I need to make decisions based upon those things. Folks, listen, if there is one thing that the Bible makes very clear, it is that in the last days, there is going to be a great falling away from the faith. We don't like to hear that. We tell everybody today, once you are saved, there is no falling away, so you don't have to worry about these things. I beg to differ. And the scriptures, I believe, beg to differ. The Bible speaks of a great defection, a massive defection from the faith that will occur within the last days because they're more concerned about this moment they're on this planet rather than eternity that rests before them. Jesus talked about it in Matthew 24 and verse number 11 when he said, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Believe it or not, the key word there is love. Because the word love that is used there is a Greek word that described universally the love that you would uniquely find in the body of Christ. 
So this is written to professing Christians. He says that in the last days, false prophets are going to rise up and deceive many professing believers. And because lawlessness will abound. In other words, this desire to live without laws, to live without restrictions, this, this idea, I don't have to submit to any authority, is going to so dominate the lives of many believers that their love for God and their love for the body of Christ is going to grow cold because they don't love God anymore. They love themselves. Paul talked about it in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 1. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. That's a very telling verse. Because as I have often stated here in this pulpit, that my personal conviction is that this great falling away, this mass defection is not going to be one day millions and millions of Christians just getting up and saying, I'm done with this, I'm through with it. That's too obvious. That's too blatant. No. Can I tell you the mass defection is actually going to take place in the church house? Men and women are going to continue to come to church and they're going to hear sermons. Unfortunately, the sermons are going to be conveying doctrines of demons. They're going to feel a spirit when they come, but it's not the Holy Spirit. It's a deceiving spirit that is seducing them to a false doctrine that will leave them bankrupt spiritually for all of eternity. Paul talked about it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 3 when he says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed in the son of perdition. We know that the coming of the Lord will not take place until there is again a massive defection from the faith. And then Paul talked about it again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, when he said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will begin to heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And that's why he starts that chapter with these words, preach the word, be instant, in season and out of season, which is to say when they want to hear it and when they do not want to hear it, reprove, rebuke and exhort with all long suffering and doctrine because he says the time is going to come when they'll no longer put up with and tolerate sound biblical teaching that will prepare them for eternity. But according to their own lusts, their own desires to live for themselves, they'll begin to amass to themselves teachers who will tell them exactly what they want to hear, tickle their ears, make them feel good in their sin, and will be turned away from the truth and aside to fables and myths. And folks, that is happening right now. It's taking place right now where men and women, they don't want to go to a church where they're going to hear sound doctrine that will prepare them for eternity. They want somebody to accommodate their lifestyle and their sin and say, pour some sugar on for me. But they do not want to hear the raw, unadulterated word of God. It may be hard. You may have to endure some tough messages. But I would rather endure and be ready for eternity than to have my ears tickled and be lost for eternity. So with that in mind, I just want to ask you. What are you doing to prepare for these days that we live in? What are you doing to prepare for the days that lie ahead? I do believe these are last days, but I'm going to tell you my personal conviction. I don't believe that the coming of the Lord is anytime soon. 
My personal convictions is that things are going to get much more difficult before the coming of the Lord is. I hope I'm wrong on that. That's my conviction. But I'm going to tell you either way, we better be ready. We, we cannot afford to say, hey, if I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. What are you doing right now to prepare for days if they increasingly become more difficult? What are you doing daily to mature and become more like Jesus Christ? Because can I tell you, maturity doesn't happen by accident. It happens because you intentionally and diligently were pursuing God. What are you doing on a daily basis to grow in your faith? What are you doing on a daily basis to become more like Christ so that you may endure to the very end in Jesus' name? That's what I want to share with you today. And I'll look at it, the story that is before us in Acts chapter 20. Let me set it up for you very quickly. Paul had spent the better part of three years in the city of Ephesus And what God did through Paul in the city of Ephesus was amazing. You may remember we talked about it in May and June here. It was unbelievable what God did in the city of Ephesus. And after that work came to a conclusion, Paul left and he spent a a period of time traveling around that region. And then the Holy Spirit put it into his heart that he needed to go back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And on his way to Jerusalem, he stops in the Greek port city of Miletus. And from there, he called for all of the elders that he had raised up over that three-year period of time in Ephesus who are now overseeing churches through Asia Minor. And this is what happens. It says in verse number 18, And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now remember, he is addressing pastors who are still in the very beginning stages of their pastoral journey. Most of them have just been pastoring now for three years or less. And yet knowing that this will be the last time he addresses them, he says to them, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And why was he so adamant about these things? For I know this, he said. I know this as a fact that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, think about these words. Imagine that you are one of the leaders that Paul has raised up. And he says this. We're all standing together. And Paul says, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. 
You imagine everybody looking around at that point saying, who is he talking about? Because he says, I am convinced that once I'm gone, there's going to be some, even among you, that are going to begin to speak perverse things in order to draw away the disciples after yourselves. For those of you that struggle with the idea uh, of someone walking away from the faith, consider again what Paul said right here. He says they're speaking perverse things in order to draw away the disciples after themselves. The word disciples was a universal word used in that day to describe Christians, followers of Jesus Christ. And yet he says that you're going to hear perverse things from these wolves and they're going to draw you away from the true faith. This was so important to the Apostle Paul to listen to what he says in verse 31. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years, for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He says, this great falling away is of such importance to me that for three years, night and day, with tears streaming down my cheeks, I warned you to flee from this mass defection. For, friends, I'm going to just tell you right now, we need to take this seriously. And remember what Paul said, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There is not one of us in this room that is, you know, that, that is exempt from the possibility of falling away from the Lord. There is no one in this room that is immune to falling away. Don't let anyone deceive you into thinking that at any moment you could not harden your heart and begin to drift from Almighty God. This is a serious issue. And as the times become more and more difficult and more and more challenging, there are men and women who are just going to bow out and say there is going to be an easier way to follow the Lord where I don't have to sacrifice. But folks, there is no way around it. If you're going to live for Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. But the good news is, is that no matter what persecution, God delivers us from them all in Jesus' mighty name. So how do we endure to the end? Well, I like looking at Paul. Paul certainly understood these things. He experienced his own struggles. He experienced his own fight for the faith. And as Paul is speaking here from his heart, he actually shares his own life as a testimony of how to endure to the end. And that's what I quickly want to go with you through today. I want to look at his example so that you and I may endure to the end as well. So how did Paul endure first? Paul endured in that he served God humbly. Paul endured to the end because he served God humbly. He says right there, serving the Lord with all humility. Would you say that with me? Serving the Lord with all humility. In other words, Paul had positioned himself, he had postured himself in this world before God and man to serve rather than to be served. He postured himself to obey God and not to indulge his own passions. He postured himself to serve the needs of the body of Christ rather than for the body of Christ to meet his needs. Every single morning, the Apostle Paul got up and he postured himself before the Lord and all mankind and said, I have not been given life today to be served, but rather to serve. 
to serve my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to serve my neighbor as I would serve myself, to put their needs ahead of my own needs. You imagine living like that. And he said he lived like that from the first day he showed up in Asia till that moment, which is a span of over three years now. He says, never once did I break that. That is the way that I lived. I served God. I served man. And that's how I endured to the very end. As I was thinking about it the other day, the thought occurred to me is that it's hard to distract a man or a woman who is always dying to themselves. It's hard to draw away a man or a woman who is dying to themselves every single day of their lives. Because the Bible says that when we are drawn away, we are enticed because of appetites that we refuse to crucify before the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're dying to yourself, you can't get distracted. Do you know it's awful hard to offend a dead man? Do you know that it's very hard to insult a dead man? It's very hard to tempt a dead man. It's very hard to get a dead man to do what you want them to do because they are dead. And a man or a woman that daily dies for the cause of Jesus Christ cannot be drawn away because they are living by the power of Almighty God and you can't tempt God so you can't tempt the God that is living in me in Jesus. Come on, somebody say amen to that. Listen. As a pastor, I've listened to my share of complaints. Complaints about me, complaints about spouses, complaints about children, complaints about parents, complaints about one another. I've heard my share of complaints, and I'm going to tell you the one thing that all the complainers have in common is that they live to be served. They do not serve. The people who complain the most are the people who are positioned and postured to be attended to, but attend to no one else. And so when their needs are not being met, when their back is not being scratched, they immediately begin to complain and blame everyone else. Because they do not have a servant's heart. Now I know some of you are going to argue with that. And you're going to say, well wait a minute Pastor Kurt. I've seen a lot of men and a lot of women in the church that serve very faithfully. But their needs aren't being met. And so they have a right to complain. Can I just remind you of of what Paul said here. He didn't just say serving the Lord and leave it out there. He said serving the Lord with all humility. What Paul was making sure we understood is that there is a selfish service that has strings attached and there is a selfless service that has no strings attached. That there is a selfish service where a person appears to be serving you because they care about you, but in the end you discover that they were only serving you because they wanted something in return. Because there was an ulterior motive. And that's what I have found in marriage. That is what I have found in family. That is what I have found to be true even in the church. That they are serving and they're out there and they're busy and they're doing stuff. But it's always to get something back. Even if it is just the praise of the people they're serving. Some of you never thought of that. But remember what it says in Proverbs 23. 
It says there in verse number one, he says, When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider who and what are before you, for you will put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to desire. Be not desirous of his dainties, for it is deceitful food offered with questionable motives. What he's simply saying there is that there are people that will put on a big spread for you and say, eat, drink, and be merry, but it's deceitful food. They're deceiving you. You think that they're servants, but what they're actually doing is trying to get a hook in you so that when they want something, you give back. I remember, this is a number of years ago now, I can't even remember how long ago, but a man came into our church and he was crying about, you know, his marriage was falling apart. And he says, you know, I've made a mess of my life and, and I've walked away from the Lord and I have done things that have sabotaged my marriage. Can you help us out? And I said, well, I can't give you any guarantees about your marriage, but I can help you. And I think that there are some things that we can do to help you grow in your faith and then we got to leave everything else in the hands of the Lord. And so he started to come to church on a very regular basis. He came to my Monday night proverb group and we sat there and tried to counsel him, me and another brother that moved away a few years ago. But we, we were trying to come alongside him and help him in some of the choices and decisions that he was made. And he was good for about five or six weeks. And we were thinking, man, he is making some real progress. And then one Monday night, he showed his colors. He got frustrated after the service was over and, and he just said, I can't stand it. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, but she's not changing. And we said, now what you've just said is that you were never doing it for your wife. You were doing it for you. What are you talking about? Love is emptied of self. You should be serving your wife for no other reason than that you're adding value to her life looking for nothing in return. Come on, everybody. You know, we all think that we got to get something in return. That's not love. Love is emptied of yourself. Love thinks nothing about what I get in return. Love is all about serving and surrendering for God and then for your fellow man. And that means even in marriage. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Kurt. Isn't marriage 50-50? Absolutely not. Whoever told you that was lying to you, it's 100%. You give 100%. The moment you slip that ring on your finger, you say, I'm dying to my needs, and I am here to serve your needs only. Oh, that's a weak amen. The minute you slip that ring on that finger, you're saying, I'm dying to what I need, and I'm living for your needs. If you're going to survive in the days ahead, you can't want anything but more of Jesus and to be a servant of God and man. Because if you're manipulated by getting your needs met, you'll be drawn away every day. He says, I serve God with all humility. You're going to love what humility means in the Greek language. You ready for this? Humility means a deep sense of one's moral littleness. It is a profound sense of how insignificant my life is in comparison to the great God that I serve. And being so humbled by that, all I could ever do is serve my God and my fellow man.
No wonder Paul said in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 5, let nothing, nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Oh, man, don't you wish you had an eraser that you could take this part out? Let each esteem others better than himself. Oh, and by the way, those of you that think he's asking too much, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who was God, but did not, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he emptied himself and became a servant to God and man, was willing to die upon a cross, esteeming our need of salvation greater than his need to be God. Wow. Wow. You are a product of a man emptying himself as his right to be honored and a man who lived for you. Let each husband esteem his wife better than himself. Let each wife esteem her husband better than herself. Let everyone in this church esteem others Better than yourself. You can't lead away a dead man. Die daily to yourself. And I know, some of you are saying, Pastor Kurt, come on. That's rough. You don't know what my marriage is like. You don't know what my family is like. You don't know what my finances are like. You don't know what it's like in my home right now. I know. And guess what? Paul said, Paul said that this level of surrender and servanthood is through tears and trials. Listen, if you're going to be a servant, you're going to shed your share of tears. And you are going to experience your share of trials. But in the end, you will endure to it all. What is more important to you? Getting your needs met. Or making sure that one day you see Jesus face to face. Come on, folks. Serve the Lord humbly. How did Paul endure to the end? He spoke the truth unreservedly. He spoke the truth unreservedly. He says, how I kept back nothing that was helpful. I helped. I kept nothing back that was helpful. It is fair to say that Paul kept the faith and endured to the end because he spoke the truth and lived the truth unreservedly. He held nothing back at all. I think sometimes we forget this, but Paul's faith rose and sat on the word of God. The Old Testament scriptures and the prophetic words that were being given to him by the Holy Spirit that we now hold in our hands as the inspired word of God. The word of God defined his life. The word of God defined his faith. The word of God defined his relationships, even with the world. The word of God was Paul's final authority of truth and settled every matter in dispute. Paul's worldview was not shaped by the governments of Rome. They were not shaped by the Pharisees. They were not shaped by his emotions and his feelings on the issue. His worldview was shaped by the bedrock of Scripture. And he said, I'm going to build my life upon the Word of God. And I can only stand here today and tell you that if you're going to endure to the very end, you better build your life upon the foundational Word of God that never changes It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is an anchor for your soul. And if you abandon this, you're lost 
for all of eternity. Come on, folks. The Word of God has got to take precedence in our life. The Word of God has got to define our life. It has to define our faith. It has to define our relationships. The Word of God must be the final authority of truth and settle every matter in our lives. Our worldview cannot be shaped by the evening news. It cannot be shaped by politicians. It cannot be shaped by Hillary or Donald. It cannot be shaped by entertainers and actresses and songwriters and actors, not our feelings, our emotions. It has got to be based upon the infallible, authoritative word of the living God Almighty. No matter what is popular, no matter what is politically incorrect, we build upon the word of God in Jesus' name. Psalm 119, the greatest praise to the word of God says forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. That same psalm says, the entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Anybody that tells you that God is still writing scripture is a liar. This word is settled forever. God has settled it. He has spoken what is true and we are to live by it. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Settled in heaven. I love that. It is settled in heaven. It means fixed in heaven. There is an anchor in heaven. It is the word of God. And if you'll build your life faithfully upon the word of God, you will find yourself where the anchor is one day, and that is in heaven. In Jesus' mighty name. Endure by the word of God. How did Paul endure? He followed the Lord fearlessly. He followed the Lord fearlessly. He says, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. Paul fearlessly followed the Holy Spirit wherever he led him. The Bible says he he went bound. That word bound means shackled. Shackled. In other words, he was being compelled by the Holy Spirit to go into Jerusalem, not knowing what would happen to him. Are you willing to follow God into a place where you don't know what's going to happen to you next? Some of you are thinking about that. That's good. But that's what it takes to be a believer. You've got to be willing to follow the Lord into the unknown. You've got to be willing to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit with a willingness to say, I'll go even if I don't know what will happen to me in obeying you. The only thing that he knew is that the Holy Spirit had bore witness to him that in every city, chains and imprisonments would be waiting for him. <laughs> now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be honest. How many of you would be willing to follow the Lord into any city where you knew, possibly, you would be shackled and thrown into jail? doesn't seem very far-fetched in the 21st century United States of America. But the love of God that had been so abundantly poured out in his heart by the power of the Holy Spirit constrained his heart and he moved forward fearlessly. 
And I, I need you to understand that when it's talking about shackles, don't think of irons that are forcing Paul along. That is not the idea. He says the love of God constrains me. It is the love of God that has been poured out in my heart that constrains me, that, that causes me to go. He isn't going by force. He's going by the influence of the love of Almighty God. He's saying God loves me so much and I love Him so much that I will follow Him even to my death because in my death I will see Him face to face in Jesus' mighty name. Can I ask you, when was the last time that you actually felt bound, shackled by the Holy Spirit and were so compelled by His love and leadership in your life to follow Him even though you knew that where He was taking you would not be easy nor comfortable? I've sat with husbands and I've sat with wives and I have said to them, you realize that you are pushing for a divorce in which there is no biblical ground whatsoever. You're pushing for a divorce with absolutely no biblical ground whatsoever. Have you prayed about this? I've prayed about it. And I know that the Lord is leading me to do it. Folks, we have got to get to a place where it is the love of God that so compels us and restrains our heart that we would never think about disobeying the Lord. I will follow you no matter what I am facing in any situation. It's so sad. The neglected God of this hour is the Holy Spirit. We love the Holy Spirit. He is the agent of the Godhead that has been left to us to empower us for life and service in Jesus' name. We neglect the Holy Spirit, and yet without the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. It was the Holy Spirit that bound Paul and that testified to him of what was waiting for him in every city, which tells me that without the Holy Spirit, we'll have no discernment of what is right and what is wrong, but will only be moved by our impulses and our feelings, which always get us into trouble. Without the Holy Spirit, you'll have no insight into your future and the things to come. You know, the beauty of walking in the Holy Spirit is that every morning I can wait upon Him. And He may not tell me every detail of my life, but He will at least give me an understanding of what the day may hold so that I'm ready for everything that comes. How dare we go into this crooked, perverse world without the power of the Spirit of Almighty God. God, help us to cry out and say, I will not get off my knees until the power of God comes upon me because I can't do it without him in Jesus mighty name come on give some praise to the Lord here today so I'm going to ask you when was the last time that you had that kind of an experience with the Holy Spirit when was the last time that you had an experience of the Holy Spirit where you were so overwhelmed by his presence that when you came out of that, just as you would come out of water drenched by its effects, you came out transformed by the power of God. 
So much of this faith has become intellectual. I love teaching the word of God, but I'm going to tell you there is an experiential thing in this. This is, this is more than just you know, a mindset. This is more than just you know, an intellectual exercise. This is a relationship with Almighty God. It is having such a close encounter with God Almighty that when I come out, that literally I cannot stand the things that I once did, and now all I want to do is love God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength in Jesus' mighty name. And then finally, Paul endured to the end because he remained steadfast sacrificially. He remained steadfast sacrificially. He says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. Paul stated that even though he didn't know what would happen to him in Jerusalem, although the Holy Spirit had told him, chains and imprisonments wait you in every city. He did later say to these men, I will never see you again. So even though he didn't know, there was a deep sense within his heart, I'm going to be martyred for my faith. And it wouldn't come for a number of years, but he knew that going to Jerusalem was going to basically take him out of that region forever and that no one there would ever see him again because martyrdom would come. But yet, just think about that. He says, I know that chains and imprisonments wait me every city and there is even the threat of martyrdom right now. But none of these things move me. I'm not drawn away by them. The threat of chains and imprisonments and even martyrdom is not enough to move me away from my call in Christ Jesus. And you say, how could he get to that point? He tells us, because I do not count my life as dear to myself. None of these things move me. I was shocked the other day as I was uh, studying that word move. Do you know that in the Greek language, that word move means to make. None of these things make me. I'm not being shaped by the threat of chains and imprisonments and even martyrdom. I'm not being authored. That's another word that it means. These things are not going to author my choices. The threat of chains and imprisonments and martyrdom are not going to make, shape, form, or fashion the decisions that I make right now. Because I have made a decision that my life is not dear. Because I want to finish the race with joy. I love that. I do not count my life dear to myself so that I may finish the race with joy. Paul was making it very clear That the reason he was enduring to the very end is because he realized that in and of himself, his life had no value. That the value of his life was being calculated by the degree that he was sacrificed to the plan and the purposes of Almighty God. He says, my life is not value apart from God. The only value that my life has is that if I surrender it to God in his plan, if I save my life, I'll lose it. But if I lose my life for the sake of Christ, then I will gain it. 
That's how we endure to the end. And I'm going to tell you that flies in the face of even what we hear in the church today. Where we are told that we need to build each other's self-esteem up. And you're valuable and you're worthy. I'm going to tell you folks, Paul would say, no, no. You've got to come to a place where you realize that apart from God, there is no value in your life. That the only value you have is when you are sacrificed to the living God Almighty. Because it's for His pleasure that we were created. To live is to Christ in Jesus. Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen? That's the value. We've got to get to a place where we can say, it doesn't matter what comes my way. It doesn't matter what threats are there in everything that I face in life. None of these things are going to move me. None of these things are going to make and shape and form and fashion the choices and the decisions that I make from this moment forward. I'm going to live for Christ no matter if it's with tears, no matter if it's with trials, no matter whether it's with pain. I do not live for myself. I live for the glory of God. That is the only way you will endure to the end. I'm going to tell you, if it's all about your happiness and your dreams coming true, and it's all about your satisfaction and your esteem and your way, you are easy pickings for the enemy. Well, Pastor Kurt, the Lord wants me happy. Whoever told you that? He doesn't want you happy. He wants you holy. And he wants you to experience joy that emerges from living a holy life. The joy of knowing that in my sorrow and in my pain, I still have brought joy to the heart of my creator. And that's all I need in Jesus' name. Paul said in Galatians 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Revelation 12 and verse number 10, it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. What's interesting about that is Jesus has already defeated the enemy by his precious blood. Can you say amen? You don't have to defeat the enemy. He's already defeated. But what you do have to do is maintain that victory. And you do that Not only by the word of your testimony, but loving not your life even unto death. By actually coming to a place where you would say, I would rather die than disobey my father. I would rather die than grieve his heart. Are you ready? I pray, I pray that Jesus comes before things get really bad. That's, I mean, who doesn't pray that way? But I just want you to be ready in the event he doesn't. I want you to know that no matter what comes, you're ready for it because you serve God humbly. 
because you hold to the truth, because you remain steadfast sacrificially. I want you to know you're ready. Are you growing in the faith? Are you becoming more like Jesus every day? I'd like to have every head bowed, every eye closed here today. Can we just come around the altar? I'm not even gonna, I'm not gonna make a long plea. If this message is spoken to you, can we just take a few minutes and just gather around this altar and say, Lord, just search me. Am I I ready? Am I just playing games? Or am I ready for anything? If you need Christ as Savior, you come. Fall upon your face. Call upon the name of the Lord. But can we just turn this into a, a prayer meeting for just a moment? Can we just cry out, say, God, search our hearts. Am I ready? Am I serving you with all humility?